Stay with us following Crosswalk for this week's Cross-Culture Q&A. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross-Culture Church in Raleigh. Maybe you're in a workplace where Christianity is looked down on as for the weak-minded and the, and the simple. Maybe you're in a family where you're the only believer in your family. Maybe you're one of the few at school who will actually be willing to say, I follow Christ. Have you ever found yourself in a situation as a Christian where you knew God was putting you in a position to be used by Him to touch someone's life? How did you respond? That feeling of hopelessness that like there's, uh, there's nothing I can do. What, what, what difference could I possibly make in my school? What impact could I possibly have in, in my workplace or, or my neighborhood? What difference could I make? Did you faithfully step through the open door of opportunity to witness for Christ? Or did you find yourself giving in to your fears and not saying anything at all? When we step out by faith and step through God's open doors of ministry, we step into God's promise. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. We've probably all found ourselves in situations where we had the opportunity to do something for God, but for whatever reason, we didn't do what we knew God wanted us to do. Well, today we continue our series entitled The Revelation, and we're looking at a church with a decision to make. God had opened a door of ministry opportunity for the church at Philadelphia. They had a chance to be used by God to make a big difference in their city. But as Pastor Clay explains, the problem was the church at Philadelphia was small. It was in a city filled with all kinds of temples to false gods, and they were facing serious opposition to their work. So the decision they had to make was to either shrink back in fear because of the enemy or be faithful and take advantage of the open door. We're glad you've joined us for this week's Crosswalk. In this study, as we've gone through these, what are seven churches, I'll say it again, seven literal churches in Asia Minor, uh, approximately 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus is writing these letters through John the Apostle, who's on the island of Patmos. He's been in prison there. He's been exiled there because of his witness for Jesus Christ. So the Roman Empire, is, uh, they, they've, they've put him on this island, hoping that'll shut him up. But, but Christ comes to him and begins to give him these these, these visions, I don't know what to call it, except these visions, and to write these letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And we've read in each one of them about the persecution and the suffering that uh, most of them were going through. Um, and, you know, we think, okay, this is a yeah, long time ago, all that kind of stuff. So I thought as we started this morning, I, I would read a story to you that maybe was a little more uh, current. Uh, the story is from uh, Jesus Freaks. The name of the book is Jesus Freaks, which is kind of a modern-day uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, if that helps you. If it doesn't mean anything, then never mind. <laughs> uh, the title of it is I'm a Soldier of Christ. It's about a 15-year-old boy, 15-year-old boy named Roy uh, Ponto. I, I don't know if there's anybody in here that's 15. If you've got a child that's 15 or a grandchild or... Or you can remember when you were a teenager. It takes place in Indonesia. The teens could tell that the shouts and the chanting were getting closer and closer. An older teen looked nervously at his friend. The Muslims are coming. We'd better hide the kids, he said. Others followed his lead, 
helped the smaller children find hiding places in the buildings nearby, and then they hid themselves. It was January, 1999 is the year, by the way. It was January, and a crowd of mostly Christian children and teenagers had gathered for a Bible camp at the station field complex of Patamura University on the island of Ambon, Indonesia. When the camp was over, cars came to take the laughing, rejoicing children back to their homes, but there were not enough cars to hold the young people. Meki Sanyik and three other Christian men had gone to Wakal village to try to rent additional transportation to take the rest home, but they had not yet come back. What the kids waiting for rides home didn't know was that on their way to the village, the men were attacked by a Muslim mob who pulled them from their car and out onto the road. Meki and one of the other men were stabbed to death, and later their bodies were burned by the mob. The two other men escaped with their lives. Before long, the mob reached the university, and they found many of the teens and forced them to come out of hiding. Roy Panto was forced from, hi- from his hiding place and made to stand before the mob. Renounce your Jesus or we will kill you, they threatened. Roy was terribly frightened. Though trembling, he answered, I am a soldier of Christ. At this, one of the Muslim attackers swung a sword at his stomach, and the sword hit the Bible that Roy held and ripped it and knocking it out of his hand. And the man's next swing sliced open Roy's stomach, and his last word was, Jesus. The mob dragged Roy's body out and threw it in a ditch. Four days later, his family found it, and even though they are racked with grief, Roy's parents stand proud of their son, who stood strong in his faith to the end. When you're, when you're up against it, I mean, when, when it's that, that moment of truth where you're going to, to stand for your beliefs or you're not going to stand for your beliefs, what do you do in that moment? I, I'm fully conscious that probably in our lifetime in America, who knows, but probably we will never face something like Roy faced. But in that moment when, when you've got a decision to make, whether you're a 15-year-old or 16-year-old teenager whether you're a a 50-year-old adult or an 8-year-old little girl, what do you do in that moment? Do you stand faithfully or do you fold under the pressure? Revelation chapter 3 is where we are, verses 13 through 17. If you brought a Bible, please feel free to open there. And we're going to have the text up on the screen as well. Thank you so much for coming and, and being here. I know I've said that already. But um, uh, the, uh, again, I remind you, the Lord is honored by your presence, and, and I really appreciate um, speaking to people rather than empty chairs, so <laughs> thanks. Beginning in verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, now the sixth church that we've looked at, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, he who is holy who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. 
because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you are here last week, you may remember that Jesus didn't have anything good to say about the church that we looked at last week, Sardis. Nor does he have anything good to say about the church that we're going to look at next week, Laodicea. But sandwiched in between those two churches is Philadelphia. And interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't have anything bad to say about the church at Philadelphia. It was a city about 28 miles uh, southeast, I believe, from Sardis. It was in a a wine-growing region, area there of Asia Minor. So uh, Bacchus, or Dionysus, as as he was also referred to, the god of wine, was the primary deity of Philadelphia. But Philadelphia had a nickname. Philadelphia was known as Little Athens because there was such a wide array of temples uh, there in Philadelphia, such a wide array, not, not as much as like Athens was, but it was Little Athens. I mean, there was a temple for every god that you could possibly imagine and, and then some. That was Philadelphia. They had all kinds of gods, all kinds of of temples, all kinds of of, uh, gods that they worship, which probably explains why Jesus introduced himself. Remember, he does that at every single church we looked at. He he has this this introduction of himself. This is probably why he introduces himself to the church in Philadelphia as, here it is, he who is holy, who is true. Remember, the word holy means set apart. You remember that? Maybe you've heard that before. The word holy means set apart. The word holy means unlike any other. That's what we say all the time when we sing. This morning we sang holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But we're saying he's unlike any other. He's not like any other God. He's not like any other religion. He is holy. He is set apart. It's probably why Jesus says in in little Athens, in this place where there's temples everywhere and there's all these false gods and there's all these false religion and there's all this this false worship going on Jesus saying to them I am he who is holy I'm the one that's set apart I'm not like any of those other gods I'm not like any of those other religions or any of those other belief systems I am he who is holy who is set apart I am the one who is true because there's so much there's so so many belief systems and so how do you he says I'm the one who's true it's a nice way to introduce himself to them he also uh, says this. He, he also says he's the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. 
Well, that's nice. But it doesn't necessarily mean a lot to us, does it? Oh, it's my, okay, uh, that, that sounds encouraging. I think that sounds kind of good. I guess it means that he has strength. You see, you and I miss sometimes uh, some of the background if we, don't, if we don't know it. If you're not from a Jewish heritage, if you don't come out of a Jewish background, to hear that wouldn't mean too much. But to these, to, but to this, these believers... In Philadelphia, many of them who came out of a Jewish background, remember many of the early uh, members of the church, those who were coming to Christ, were coming from Judaism. They were Jewish in their heritage and they were practicers of Judaism. They were coming out of that, coming into relationship with Jesus. So Jesus introduces himself in a way that those who came from a Jewish background would have understood what he was saying. Let me tell you the story. Isaiah chapter 22 is where you find it. In Isaiah chapter 22, there's a wicked man by the name of Shebna or Shebna who is overseeing or, or he's a leader among the people. God has given him the responsibility of watching over and protecting and caring for and providing for the people of Israel. But instead of doing that, Shebna uses his position and he uses his power for his own personal gain. We've all known people like that. He uses it for his own. Oh, he's supposed to be caring for the people. He's supposed to be protecting the people. But, but hey, I'm in this position. I'm going to take advantage of it. And he does. In Isaiah 22, God removes Shebna. He says, I, he says I'm taking that guy out. And in his place, I'm putting a man by the name of Eliakim. In uh, Isaiah 22, 22, it says this. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shuts, shut. When he shuts... No one will open. So when the believers there in Philadelphia who came out of a Jewish background, when they hear Jesus introduce himself as the one who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's open, they immediately know what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm going to be to you like Eliakim was to the people of Israel. I will protect you. I will, I will, I will watch out for you. I will provide for you. You will not have to worry while I am on the throne. What a, what a good word of encouragement that must have been to them. Jesus will be to us like Eliakim was in the old days to the nation of Israel. So, uh, in, in this case, the, the key of David, if you're, if you're filling in your outline, the key of David, uh, simply is, he, Jesus is simply referring to the sovereign, the just, the righteous, his righteous rule. He's simply uh, establishing his, his, his position among them, which he does all the time to all the churches. He's establishing his sovereign, just, and righteous rule is really, in essence, uh, what he's saying there. So once again, and I've mentioned this several times throughout this study, once again, Jesus is establishing his authority. But whereas in the previous churches, he was establishing his authority to bring them to a place of repentance because they, they were messing up. They were doing things contrary to what God wanted. He establishes authority to bring them to a place of repentance. Listen, I'm the one in control. You need to do this. In Philadelphia, he establishes authority to bring them to a place of encouragement. And they needed encouraging. They needed to be strengthened because they were a small little band of believers in a a sea of, of idolatry and, and paganism. So when Jesus says, I know your deeds, he, he's, not, he's not insulting them. He's not getting on to them. He's saying, listen, I, I know. I understand. I know you're small. I know there's all these other temples. and I, I, I know that you're small. and I understand that you don't have a, have a, a, a big influence in this city. But 
Jesus says, I'm opening a door for you. He's encouraging them. He says, I'm opening a door for you. And if I open that door for you, no one will be able to shut that door. What a, what a great encouragement that should have been to the church in Philadelphia and should be to us as well. To be reminded that when God opens the door, nobody's going to be able to shut that door. No matter what the opposition, no matter what you face in Scripture, in the, in the New Testament, every time it refers to an open door, it's referring to an opportunity for ministry. It's referring to uh, an opportunity to share and, and to spread the message of Jesus. That's really what you find when, when, when you find some reference to open door. It's, it's an opportunity for ministry. It's an opportunity to have an impact. As I, as I was talking about church a while ago, it's an opportunity to make a difference in the world in which we live. Let me show you what I mean. In uh, Acts uh, chapter 14, I think it is. Uh, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had, what? Come on. Opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God had made it possible. He'd opened this door where they had been able to minister to the Gentiles and share the message of Jesus with them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, there is a what? Wide open door for a great work here. Watch this. Although many oppose me, Paul never, never said that it's just, oh, it's all smooth sailing and, you know, and it's hunky-dory and, and chocolate pie and, and, and no problems at all. And many oppose me, but he looks at it and says, but it's a wide open door. It's, a, it's just a wide open door. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, there it is again, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me. And then finally in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well. He's asking the, the church in Colossae to pray for him that God will open up to us a door for the word. In other words, to share the message of Christ so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I also have also been imprisoned. So an open door of ministry opportunity meant that God was making it possible for them to have an influence on their culture. Yes, you're small. Yes, there's not a lot happening to you, but, but I'm opening a door for you. That, that so excites me when I read that kind of stuff. When I read this here in Revelation chapter 3 when I, and I read those other verses, that, that so excites me because, listen, a, a cross-culture church isn't big numerically yet, but... But God is opening a big door of opportunity for us. I really believe that. God is opening some big doors of ministry opportunity for us to, to impact and, and make a difference in our world. Um, most of you probably don't know this, but just recently I was contacted by a young lady at the school board, the Wake County School Board, who wanted to interview me. And I, and I did. I met with her for about an hour or so, and she... She did an interview. She wanted to interview me uh, to do a story on cross-culture church because she had heard about the relationship that, that this church has with the schools here in the Leesville area and all of the, the things that we had done within the school system and, and out in the community. She had heard about those things, so she wanted to do a story on it. And, and she did. We, like I said, we sat down, we talked. She asked me a lot of questions. As I shared with her some of the things that we've done for the schools and different ways we've tried to minister into the, to the community and, and things like that. And, and then she, she wanted to see our website. So I'm sitting there and she goes on the website. She's asking more questions. And then she says, well, you all, because she knew we were, we were fairly new. She said, well, you, must, you all must already be a, a big church. No, we, we just serve a big God that, that opens big doors of ministry opportunity. And, and the only 
the only problem we'll run into is if we fail to step through the doors of opportunity as God gives them to us. Because of fear or, or as the Philadelphians no doubt felt, what, what difference can I make in this culture? I mean, look at this. Look, look at the paganism. Look at the idolatry. Look at the, look at the immorality. What difference can I make? Jesus, oh, I'm, I'm opening a door for you. You can make a difference. It's, 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 not, it's, not, the, it's not how big you are. It's not, if I open a door for you, you can have an impact. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's why I'm going to open this door for you. And then, well, let me, let me get, get it to you before I get ahead of myself. There in 7 and 8, in this introduction and leading up is where you find, I believe, the BP squared, the big picture biblical principle for Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. And it's this. When we step out by faith and step through God's open doors of ministry, we step into God's promise. That's what I call high-stepping. When we step out by faith, and that's what he's asking the church in Philadelphia to do, and by the way, that's what he's asking us to do as well. When you step out by faith and step through God's open doors, you step into God's promise. That's what he's telling the church in Philadelphia, and that's what he's telling us. In verse 9, we begin to see the promise. He says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. This is now the second time, if you've been with us throughout this series, this is now the second time Jesus has referred to this this synagogue of, of Satan. Who are these guys? They were Jews. They were Jewish by heritage. They were practicers of Judaism. There in the city of Philadelphia. And they had a synagogue there. A synagogue for, for Jews was, was what, what a church is to uh, Christians. It was a place where they met and read and studied and prayed and, and, and worshipped to, to some extent. They had a synagogue there in the city of Philadelphia. And remember I said a moment ago that, that many, most actually initially, most of the people who were coming to Christ early on were Jews. They had grown up in Jewish homes. They had grown up practicing Judaism. Someone had shared with them the message of Messiah, would be the Hebrew phrase, the the anointed one, that that Jesus, Yeshua, had come, and he was actually a Messiah. And they had come to faith in Christ. And when, when they did, they were ostracized from their families. They were banished from their Jewish communities. They were fired from their jobs, to put it that way. They were thrown out, and the Jewish community hated this little group of people known as followers of Christ, these Christians. They hated them. And they were doing everything they could to stamp them out. Um, Verse 9 tells us a couple of things. Number one, it tells us Jesus does not take kindly to those who oppose the work of the kingdom. Because I'm telling you, it may not mean as much, or even to us, we can, we can kind of pick up or perceive the, uh, the offensiveness of it. But you can't imagine as a Jew who claims, who claims that I am God's chosen people. I am the believer in the one true Jehovah God. He is my God. For Jesus to call them 
a synagogue of Satan. You can't even imagine what an insult that is. And he didn't stutter when he said it either. Jesus does not take kindly to those who oppose the work of the kingdom. Second thing it tells us, kind of connected with it, is this. That he knows when you face opposition for your walk with Christ. Maybe, maybe you're in a workplace where you're the only one that kind of stands out as a Christian. Maybe you're in a workplace where Christianity is looked down on as, as, as for the weak-minded and the, and the simple. Maybe you're in a family where you're the only believer in your family. Maybe you're one of the few at school who will actually be willing to say, I follow Christ. Do you know, you know what it is to have that feeling of, of, of insecurity, that feeling of fear? That feeling of hopelessness that like there's, uh, there's nothing I can do. What, what, what difference could I possibly make in my school? What impact could I possibly have in, in my workplace or, or my neighborhood? What difference could I make? Jesus sees it every time. Your faithfulness and the opposition you face. It does not go unnoticed. And, and basically what he's saying there in verse 9 is there is a day coming when those who have opposed me and opposed you will oppose you no longer. There's a day coming when those who have laughed will laugh no longer. There's a day coming when the righteous, those who have given their life to Christ and are following and serving in Him, there's a day coming when they will be vindicated in their belief. That's part of the promise. I like it. Okay, and then we come to the second part of the promise. Verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance... I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There's the second part of the promise. Jesus refers to the, this hour of testing. This hour of testing or this hour of tribulation or this hour of trial or, or hardship. This hour of testing that is to come, as Jesus says, upon the whole world. I'm going to keep you from it, church at Philadelphia. And remember, there's application throughout the church age for all churches. So this promise, as you can imagine, or as you may know, has been more than a little discussed through the centuries. What is this promise to keep the church from the hour of testing? Well, let's begin to answer that in the same way that we began to answer a question last week, by looking at what Jesus doesn't mean. Jesus cannot mean that he is going to keep the church of Philadelphia or the church today from all testing, all trials, all tribulation in general. He can't be saying that. He can't be promising that. We know that because the church at Philadelphia, along with all of the other churches, were going through trials. They were going through tribulation. They were going through hardships right then, just as many people do today, just as many churches do today, just as many followers of Jesus do even today, even 15-year-olds. So he can't mean that, well, okay, now I'm going I'm to protect you completely. It'll be pie in the sky, by and by, easy living, easy following. You, just, you, just, you can just skate right on into heaven when it's your time to go. He can't mean that. Notice the definite article, the hour of testing. And then he basically repeats it again, that hour. Jesus seems to be referring to a particular, specific future event yet to occur. Since he names it specifically, he says the hour. And since he can't mean testing in general, 
He seems to be referring to a specific period of time. Jesus is referring to what the Bible refers to as the Great Tribulation Period. The Great Tribulation Period. Now, we will look at the Great Tribulation Period when we get to chapter 6 through chapters 19. We'll be in the Tribulation Period a long time, symbolically speaking. (laughs) We'll be in the Tribulation Period a long time. Chapter 6 through 19, we'll look at the Tribulation Period when we get there. But, let me say this. Most conservative scholarship believes that the Great Tribulation period refers to a future event that's not, in other words, it's not yet occurred, even today it's not yet occurred, that is a specific period of time, seven years, a seven-year period of time where the wrath of God basically is poured out on the sinfulness of the world. Why seven years? Well, you remember we looked early on at that number seven and the symbolism in it, that that seven symbolizes completeness, it, it symbolizes fullness, or being finished. It's the great tribulation period. Now, add it to that discussion. Y'all are all riveted right now, right? Y'all are doing good. Thank you, my son. <laughs> you get to have lunch today. Um, add it to that discussion is, okay, well, does Jesus mean that he's going to keep us through that great tribulation period? Or is he going to keep us from, removed out of, that great tribulation period? Because there is some evidence that the word, the original word, can be translated either way. That that might not necessarily mean removed from, but protection through. Which does he mean? We'll answer that when we get to chapter 4 more thoroughly. I'm going to get y'all coming back. Every time, get y'all coming, come back. We'll answer that more thoroughly when we get to uh, chapter 4. But I will say this right now. I will say this. That if Jesus is referring to a future time period that's yet to occur, as most people believe that he is, then saying that he's going to keep us from the hour from that hour, from the Great Tribulation period, is the only one that makes any sense for application to all the churches throughout the ages. Let me, tell you, let me explain what I mean. If Jesus means, I'm going to keep you through. Now, you're going to have to go through the Great Tribulation period, but I'm going to keep you through it. I'm, I'm going to be with you through it. If Jesus means that, then that statement makes no sense to the church in Philadelphia. Because the church in Philadelphia didn't go through that. They didn't go through that great tribulation period. Oh, sure, they had persecution. They had tribulation. They had stuff. But not what he's talking about here, that great tribulation period that is yet to come upon the whole world. So to say that he's going to keep them through that makes no sense to them. But to say that he's going to keep them from that does make sense. Because he did keep them from it. They died before that great tribulation period came. So he kept them from it. And so has he kept every succeeding generation of the church from it. And there's a generation yet to come when those events will begin to transpire. And I believe, getting ahead of myself, but I believe that what Jesus is referring to is this is the first touch point, if you will, in the book of Revelation where he refers to something that's known as the rapture or the snatching out of the church to be removed in order to be kept from the great tribulation period. Well, there, I've already given away where I stand on that, haven't I? I haven't even got to chapter 4 yet. All right, so here we go. Now, verse 11, let's, let's, let's wind this thing up. Here we go, verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. 
he said that several times, I'm coming quickly. And just, if you've been here, you've heard me say this, but I remind you again, when he says, I'm coming quickly, he's not necessarily saying that, it, that it's soon, time-wise. In this case, we know it's been almost 2,000 years. The word doesn't necessarily mean soon. What it means is sudden. It means unannounced. In other words, you, you're not going to say, okay, um, yeah, he sent me a telegram. He's showing up in, uh, in six years, uh, four months, three weeks, and two days he'll be here. No, he says, when, I, when, when, this, when this happens, it's just going to happen. Quickly. I come quickly. And then he, he, he adds to that this thing that he said over and over and over and over again. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold on. Be faithful. What he's saying to the church in Philadelphia. Be faithful. You've come, you've come far. You've done good. And you may be small, but you are making a difference for the kingdom because I'm opening a door for you. And then verse 12 the last part of the promise. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Again, without a Jewish background, this doesn't necessarily have the same impact for us. It sounds good, and Jesus gives this kind of encouragement right at the end of every one of his letters. He gives them a promise of the, of the future blessing. He gives them a promise of, of eternity. But the way he phrases it here is, is interesting to say, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. One of the things I didn't mention to you about Philadelphia. Philadelphia was built on a fault line, and it was a city that had experienced numerous earthquakes. Now, you and I, just in the last few weeks, have been painfully aware of the devastating effects of earthquakes in different parts of the world, in, in Haiti and in, in, in Chile. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands killed. And, and we have seen the massive response to those disasters, right? Flooding in with supplies and support and, and search and rescue and equipment and all that stuff. Can you imagine 2,000 years ago, a devastating earthquake hits? What, what that would be like? In A.D. 17, probably the most prominent one, in A.D. 17, an earthquake hit Philadelphia that leveled the city, destroyed the city. The city was rebuilt, but it's reported that many of the citizens of the city never moved back into the city. That they chose to live out in the fields because they were fearful because so many people had died when walls crashed in on them. I read somewhere that in the midst of the devastation after the earthquake, that the only thing left standing were, the, were some of the pillars that were some of the supporting footing for the buildings that were built. And Jesus, I'm going to make you a pillar. Isn't it good to know that no matter how shaky life is, and can we say that? Can, can we admit life is shaky at times? Thank you. Life is downright rum, rumble in the jungle kind of stuff. Life is crazy. That no matter how shaky life may be, that no matter how, how earth-shattering the events in our life may be, Jesus I'm going to make you like a pillar. You'll stand strong in the midst of all that you have to go through. If you rely on me, if you lean on me, you'll never have to worry about it, and I will make you strong. And listen, here's the best part. You're not just a pillar built anywhere. He says we're pillars built in the house of God. Now, Again, this must be Jewish day or something because, again, we miss it. We don't, okay, that's nice, be in the house of God. No, listen, these early believers, they would have understand, understood the significance of that statement. 
Because nobody went into the house of God. Nobody went into the, the, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, that place in the temple where, where only God dwelt. Nobody went in there except one person. And he went one time a year. One day a year on Yom Kippur, on Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in. And he would go in with his priestly garments on. And guess what's written on his priestly garments? The names of the 12 tribes of God's chosen people. And he'd go in and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat as a sign that, that, God, that their, the people's sins were being, were being covered. And Jesus says, I'm making you a permanent part of the family of God. I'm building you up like a, like a pillar in the temple of God. And my name is written on you. Not, not name, my name is written on you. If we... Step out in faith and step through God's open doors of ministry opportunities. We step into God's promise. The little church in Philadelphia, they had every reason in the world to keep quiet and to fly under the radar. But instead, they chose to believe God and to remain true to their calling to take the message of Jesus to their culture. Their faithfulness didn't go unnoticed by the Lord. Jesus was pleased with the church at Philadelphia, and he intended to reward them for their faith. We can learn a lot from the believers at Philadelphia. Like them, we may very well face opposition in our culture to the message of Jesus, but like them, we need to step through the doors that Jesus opens for us to touch others' lives. We may feel inadequate, but we need to be faithful. We may feel fear, but we need to be faithful. We may feel small with little power, but if Jesus is opening the door, no one will be able to close it. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, joy, and hope. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Interesting subject. The topic this morning with Q&A, uh, the, the Q&A question is that by the Q&A, uh, again, I, I say this, each week we take one question that people have turned in that deals with some topic that they want to, to deal with. And as I've promised all along, if the Bible addresses it, we want to address it. So Q&A for this week is this. What does the Bible say about having to go to church? It's a very practical one. What does the Bible say about having to go to church? I've had a couple of people uh, mention this to me, turn it in on, on uh, 
on, on a card. And so I thought it was a good one to address. It is a very relevant topic, uh, by the way, because increasingly in, in this postmodern, what's, considered, what's called this postmodern culture in which you and I live, and that's what you live in, whether you realize it or not, you live in, in a post, what's called a postmodern culture. In the postmodern culture in which we live, there is an increasing anti-institutional bias. Uh, in other words, there is a, there is a growing uh, sense among people of mistrust for, for anything institutional, which includes the church. And so a lot of people are asking the question, do I really need church? Do I really need to, to go to church? And quite honestly, some of that um, mistrust or some of that uh, uncertainty about uh, institutions, some of it's warranted. Churches, for example, large or small churches, unless they are very careful, can, can become bogged down in bureaucracy and in, and in politics and in, and in fighting and in all that stuff, you know, that, that you've heard about or, or maybe experienced. It can, and, and churches tend to, it seems like to me, churches tend to become very, very program-driven, very programmatic, you know. And, and, and they give us, you know, 48 things to do on, on eight different nights of the week. And that, that somehow, if we're, the more things that we're doing, that that somehow is what makes us a better uh, Christian. I personally am convinced that churches keep people so busy inside the church that they never have time to go out and be the church. I'm convinced of that. That's part of the reason that the strategy for cross-culture church is what it is. Cross-culture church practices what's referred to as a simple church strategy or structure. We focus on two areas here. We focus on corporate worship for both adults and for children. And we focus on small in-home meetings, groups that we call life groups. That share and, and do life Together, we, we, we focus on those two areas, and, and that's it. Now, there may occasionally be special events and, and outreach opportunities, and, but even most of those are done through the LGs. But, but it, it's the idea of, of keeping simple and structure so that we're, so that we're able to move and, and interact in the people's lives. Because people are asking that question. I, I don't, this, is, this is all a big lot of stuff. I, I just don't think I, I need this. I, I, don't, I don't know that I want anybody telling me what to believe or what not to believe. I, I, don't, I don't think I, I need church to uh, be a follower of Jesus. I don't think I, I need church to, to be okay with God. Yeah, you kind of do. Now, let me explain what I mean. I'm not saying that having your name on a church roll in some way uh, gains you access to heaven. That being some member of a church makes you, uh, you know, in right standing with God. As a matter of fact, I, this was years ago, but Billy Graham shocked the religious world years ago when he made this statement, when he said that he believed that as much as 80% of the church was lost. And by that, what he meant was that, that he believed that a large number of people have a religion connected to Jesus Christ, but they have no actual relationship with Jesus Christ. So, uh, church membership is not the Willy Wonka golden ticket that, that makes you okay with God. The only thing that gets you in right standing with God is the shed blood of Jesus Christ 
What he accomplished for you on Calvary. And listen to me. Not, the, not simply the intellectual knowledge of that. But the life-changing belief in that. A belief that, that, that causes my life to be surrendered to him. So, being a church member, uh, no. That, you, that's not what gets you into heaven. But... Remember this. Church was God's idea. So it can't be that bad a thing. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said this. Uh, he said to them, but, do you, but who do you say that I am? He's in this conversation with his disciples. But who do you say that I am? He'd ask them, what are other people? What are, who, what are other people saying about me? Who do they think I am? And then he says, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, upon this statement that he's just made, that you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, upon this statement, Peter, I will build what? I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it or overpower it or, or overcome it. So, it's Jesus' church, it's his idea, he's the one that, that, that thought of it. Now, yes, true, Jesus is referring to to his, his believers throughout all of the ages, not necessarily to an institution, not necessarily to a building, but the word church in the original language, in the Greek that was written in, is ekklesia. And it basically means this, the called out ones is really was, was its original meaning. They were called out, anybody called out to a meeting or a gathering or to an announcement or something like that. So it came to be referred to as the gathered ones or the gathering. That's what the word church means. When you see the word church, that's exactly what it means. They're the called out ones, they're the gathered ones. So the, the word even in itself implies that it's this gathering uh, together. And Jesus really has, thinks it's a kind of a good idea to get together. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is probably the, uh, the verse that's, that may be most familiar. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not, emphasis mine, let us not neglect our, what's that next two words? Let's not neglect our meeting together as some people do. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So, uh, it was his idea. It's his church. He's building it. He thinks it's a pretty good idea that we get together. The word itself means to gather together. But let me give you one other reason. And then I'm done. Why wouldn't you want to go to church? Why wouldn't you want to gather with a group of people as imperfect as all of us are? Why wouldn't you want to gather together with a group of people who, who can love on you and who can share with you, share life with you, the good, the bad, and the ugly of life, who can comfort one another and encourage one another and, and even counsel and, and correct each other when we need it? Why, why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Why wouldn't you want to be a part of something I could even start preaching on this for a minute. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of something that has the potential to, to change the world, to bring hope and help to a world that so desperately needs help 
and hope. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Why wouldn't you want to be a part of something that, that has the potential to change a person's eternal destiny? You see, to me, the question isn't, do I have to go to church to be a follower of Jesus? The question I should be asking is, why wouldn't I go to church if I'm a follower of Jesus? And there's Q&A.